there's kind of three areas that I generally generally look at in terms of building a culture and a performance. One is one is shared experience. The second is understanding. So that's understanding of each other and the team and the environment they're in. And then the third is empathy. Hello and welcome to the Offfield Rugby Pod. I'm your host, Brian Moylet. I'm a former Irish age grade international player, now playing in Vancouver and coaching collegiate rugby. Each week, I chat with somebody involved at the top end of the game to hear about their journey, get their insights, and learn about how they do what they do. On Instagram, I'm the Offfield Rugby Coach. That's at Offfield Rugby. Please follow me there. I share content around mental skills and performance and also clips from the pod. Please subscribe to the pod wherever you're listening if you haven't already. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and a review. And in the review, let me know what you like about the podcast. Would love to hear your thoughts. Lastly, please share the pod with some friends. Those different things help people find the pod and are really, really appreciated. Today I'm chatting with Andy Lockwood, who is a major in the British Army and has worked extensively in identifying leaders for the Army, leadership development and building culture in teams. We chat about what sports can and have learned from the Army and also what the Army can learn from sports teams. I've been really interested in the Army for quite a while in how they develop leaders, strategy and cohesive high-performing teams. So really enjoyed getting into all this with Andy. If you've listened to the pod before, you might have heard me reference David Goggins and Jocko Willink, who are two Navy SEALs that I really admire. I chat with Andy about how he identifies future leaders for the Army, what attributes and characteristics he looks for, and then what the Army does from there to mould those people into leaders. We talk about determination and motivation, building culture, and the importance of empathy. From a very rugby-specific angle, we talk about how you can get the most out of your video reviews, your video analysis, how you can influence your players to be their best selves and work in the direction or to the game plan that you want, and also how coaches can help players with nerves. So quick mention from our sponsor, and then it's episode number 27 with Andy Lockwood. A lot of people stress about money. Where should you be investing? Are you prepared if there's a crash? And loads more. And if you're not an expert, finances can be really daunting. I know the people at Sparks Wealth, and they're brilliant. What they do is they educate you on your finances without any jargon. They create a personalized plan for you and manage your money so that it's working for you. And so you don't need to be worrying about it. You can book a free, no obligation Zoom call now on their website, sparkswealth.ie. So Andy, chat to me a bit about your background in the game. You played a bit when you were younger? Yeah, so played a bit of rugby. Um, started like a lot of people, just, you know, as a kid, local rugby club. Um, played through school, uh, left school and went to Perth in Western Australia, specifically to play rugby, actually. Um, it was a year out. It actually ended up being, ended up being two. And um, I played for a club in Western Australia. I was also lucky enough to get picked for the Western Australia under-19s as well. Um, and that was, a, that was a great time. Perth is a lovely city. And for anyone that's been there, I mean, it's 20 years ago, but for anyone that's been there, Western Australia is lovely. Perth itself is fantastic. Sunshine's brilliant. 
uh the rugby is on firm ground it's fast it was a really good it was just a really good time uh in my life as a young guy big change up from where you grew up probably wet soggy fields <laughs> yeah, a little bit mate yeah so the sort of hard fast running rugby was mainly start and the end of the season or if you played sevens in the summer yeah, yeah. and were you australian qualified no i wasn't um so i had a british passport uh i went over on a standard working visa as you could back then i think you still can um and um funnily enough actually the, my my qualification and heritage came up when um so i played for western australia in Perth, and then wasn't selected to go to travel uh, over to the East Coast to play in Sydney because they realised I wasn't Australian. Um, and that, came, that just came about when they were talking about insurance and flight details, and I showed them my passport, and I was the only one that had a, had a British passport. Yeah. And so spent a couple of years there, and then what, headed back, decided to head back home to England? Exactly that, mate. Yeah, came back, went to university uh, in a um, town called Cheltenham, uh, spent a couple of years there. And then in my final year, I was sort of looking around at things to do. And a, a mate of mine had, um, had just joined the army. And I was chatting to him and I thought, this kind of sounds like what I want to do. Um, and I was, at that point, I was, I, was, there was, I was at a crossing point. I could either go and do a master's um, so stand at my university and go and do a master's or, or join the army and go down that route and I thought you know what I want to go and do something a bit adventurous a bit different um, I don't particularly want a nine to five sort of job and so that's the route that I went down Cool how did you find it when you were starting out? Well I was a little bit naive I think in, in what the army was I mean my experience in the military my granddad was in the navy so but that was a long time ago um so my experience of the military in the army was, was pretty poor and so on day one when i turned up uh it was it was a bit of a shock and it was a bit of a shock for quite a while until i got into the swing of things and realized you know realized how it kind of worked um but yeah there was a bit of a bit of a shock and capture moment for the first few weeks yeah. So when you were going in, were you like interested in getting deployed, going overseas, like that kind of thing? Because are there a couple of different strands with the army? Like a lot of people will stay where they are, say in England. I know friends in the States are in the army there, but then others will go to the Middle East or go elsewhere. Is that right? Yeah. So 9-11 happened when I was at um, university. And I remember, I remember when it happened. And that wasn't so much a, it wasn't a catalyst. I didn't feel some sort of call to arms, but it was definitely something I saw. And then the subsequent actions that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, it, it sort of, it spoke to the slightly adventurous side of me. And it was definitely a factor in joining in that, you know, I could almost guarantee I was going to go and do stuff mm. uh, overseas. And I did. And, and it was, it was certainly a motivating factor. It wasn't the only reason, but it was definitely a motivating factor. So where you're in Canada now, you're in Ontario. So where did you go, start out in England, and then how did you end up here? So I've had a, I've had a bit of a, I've had some good times overseas. So I started off to my, did my initial training in the UK for a year, then spent three years in Germany. Uh, 
in a town called Osnabrück, a city, sorry, called Osnabrück in the northwest, right near the Dutch border. And so three years in Germany was brilliant as a uh, as a young guy, uh, then got married. And in between leaving Germany and two weeks later arriving Cyprus in, into Cyprus and married. So my, my wife and my new wife and I turned up in Cyprus and we spent three years in Cyprus. So I spent the first six years of my army career really overseas. And it was great. And that included various deployments as well. So that was brilliant. And there's not many people that, that can spend six years overseas, you know, um, living and working. Then came back to the UK and then it was just a series of jobs in the UK. And then about a year ago, um, I found out I was coming to Canada. Uh, and I had I had asked for it. I hadn't been sent here. I did ask to come here. Um, it was just the right time. So between sort of leaving Cyprus and, and getting here, my wife and I, we've got three kids. So, um, And it's got to the point now where I just thought, actually, I, it would be really nice to take the kids overseas and let them experience something different, a new culture, different places, different, see different things. And so that was the kind of, that was my reason for coming out here. Cool. And so you work in leadership culture and do you work in that through your role in the army as well, as well as with teams? So I have done. Um, so my, I've done various leadership roles um, within the army over the last few years. Um, I also did a stint at something called the Army Officer Selection Board, which is where all everyone who wants to be an officer in the army has to go and they get select, they get ass- uh, assessed and selected. And they go twice. You go for a couple of days, uh, two days to start with. And then if you pass that, but you come back for another four days. And so I was one of the people that was down there uh, assessing and then selecting future leaders for the army. So we did a lot of that. And while I was there, we did work with some civilian organizations as well, such as Lloyds Bank, Tesco, uh, Bath Rugby. The FA turned up. I wasn't I wasn't in, included in that visit, but um, but Gareth Southgate turned up when he was, uh, I think it was when he was part of the under 20 setup. Um, but fortunately, I wasn't on that, so I can't really, I can't really claim anything for uh, England, yeah. England football future success. Um, but we did a whole load of stuff with other organisations, um, and that was that was interesting for a few reasons. In that, it kind of showed me that what the military does and how it how it does leadership, how it assesses, selects and identifies and develops leadership is actually quite applicable to elsewhere, particularly sports teams. So the the similarity between sports teams and the military is there's a lot of crossover. And so what I also do is I assist sports teams with their leadership identification and development. And that's through something I've just set up called um, the Grey Wolf Consulting Group. So that's a really that's an interesting avenue that I've I've started up. I'm about to start a, a doctorate in sports leadership. Um, so that'll be another interesting avenue to look at. Um, so I've done a few leadership roles in the army, uh, and there's definite scope I think for sports teams to learn a bit from what the military does, and vice versa, and for the military to look at areas outside of that kind of military defence arena. To say, okay, well, what are sports teams doing in terms of leadership? How are they developing their leaders? How are they identifying leaders within their within their squads and their wider teams? And how are they developing it? Because the crossover, as mentioned, is, is, is huge, and I think that the two areas could learn a lot from each other. Yeah, a lot there. I want to get into, but where are you doing the doctrine leadership? Uh, so the doctor is going to be done through um, University of Central Lancashire. 
Okay, online, obviously. Yeah, yeah online. Yeah, yeah online, yeah, part time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I won't be able to. I won't be able to do it full time or, or in person like in Canada. But yeah, but it's a, it sounds like a, a decent course. The people I've been in touch with so far, uh, really encouraging, really engaging. There's other military people who've done the course previously as well. So it, yeah, it's a known known, which is good. Good stuff. And so when you were in that role with the army, what were you seeing in people when you were looking for future leaders? Like, what was it that, what was your the kind of criteria or what were you looking for in people? Yeah. So there was a, there was various criteria that we would, that we would be looking at. Um, and it might be things such as, you know, uh, confidence, determination, uh, communication skills. And, and then what I noticed when doing the stuff with the, the civilian organizations was that, Actually, the the attributes of what a what someone might deem a good leader is actually across the board. It, it almost doesn't matter what organisation you're in, what team you're part of. Actually, being a good leader is being a good leader. And I listened to a podcast the other day, and they mentioned Ted, the, the, the program Ted Lasso, and how they, and they were wondering whether or not someone could do that. Uh, come in from a completely different organization uh and and be a be a leader uh, and it got me thinking i thought actually the answer is probably yes yeah because a good leader is a good leader and For the sure. attributes that that person shows will transcend the organization without the kind of tactical nuance of a particular sport actually i do think someone could come across from one sport to another yeah i for sure do think as well and you if you've tried to do it, Clive Woodard went across soccer to Southampton, but then I think That's he right. got the Olympics job with London 2012 pretty quickly after that. So we didn't get to see what would happen. But yeah, you look at people like Phil Jackson and these other coaches, for sure, I think they'd be able to step across into other sports. So I think it'd be a really interesting, it'd be a really interesting experiment. I'm not sure there's a there's a CEO or a chairman who've, who've perhaps willing to put the money up front to yeah, see that yeah. happen. Just but it would be incredibly interesting to see that happen. Yeah. And so you mentioned there you were, you look for confidence, determination, communication. How would you increase or help someone develop their confidence then? So say you get a, I don't know, what, what age would you be getting people out? Would it be in their early 20s when you're kind of identifying them? Yeah, so the, the army generally, um, the normal route is either um, straight after school, so you get some officers coming in uh, at so by the time they've done all the selection, they're probably at the earliest, they're about nineteen, maybe twenty, and then you've got the post-university crowd who come in and they're in there. I was slightly later. I, I because I went played rugby in Australia and then went to college, spent four years there. I was actually twenty-four before I joined the army. Most people are in the kind of twenty-one, twenty-two sort of bracket um, in terms of joining as an officer. Um, but yeah, so in, in a kind of you know, very late teens, early 20s. Um, and it's interesting that the um, we kind of, they go on a bit of a, as, a, as a young officer, you go on a bit of a journey. So you go through, you go through the selection process. And then you go to you do your basic training at Sanders, and that's for a year. And it kind of takes you on a bit of a journey from, from what you would, what you would, ex- and, and it kind of, it makes you, in some ways, it's very intentional. So it forces you into situations where you have to make decisions. You have to decide what's going on. You have to analyze information and make a decision. And then you have to get the people around you to kind of go, go and do that. And all of this is, is backed up by a lot of the instructing is done by some quite senior soldiers 
So as a young officer, you are being instructed by soldiers who are the experts in what they do. Um, and these guys, uh, guys and girls, and these women, men and women are often, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the army. They've got so much experience and they're instructing the young officers on, you know, and giving them the advice and the information, the instructing. And, and it seems to work really well. Um, but like I said, it is a bit of a journey. And certainly when I look back as to how I, how I was when I went through my selection and then came out the other end of, uh, of training, even though it's only a year, it's a, it's a definite difference. Maturity levels go through the roof um, because you have responsibility put on you. Whether you like it or not, you're in the kind of environment where you are made responsible for things. And you are almost, you're almost forced to deal with that, but not in a bad way. You know, it, it, it's, a, mm. it's a good push. There's a bit of push, there's a bit of pull. Um, but overall, it was quite a positive experience for me. Yeah, that's interesting. I can imagine, like, yeah, after a year of that, what it sounds like for sure, you will be more confident. And I think there's something, one of the biggest things for, say, sports people is experience. Like, you get confidence from experience. So, say you're picking an 18, 19, 20 year old person as a potential future leader, and then they go into this year, which is difficult, you know, there's challenges, but then as kind of through those challenges, failing, succeeding, whatever happens, you get confidence through the experience of doing, don't you? Absolutely. And the, and the selection is based on someone's potential. So it's always based on their potential. It's not, you're never, the, you're certainly not the finished product. Um, and I've been in now 17 years. Um, and so people change, people grow, people develop. Um, but it's very much based on, on potential in that initial kind of period. And then the military will take you on and there. And it's very intentional about your development. So you go on, there's loads of courses you go on. Um, some are kind of trade specific. Some are more kind of generic leadership uh, development courses. But the, the army and the military is very intentional about developing its people. Yeah. And then determination, I think, is an interesting one because it seems it'd be difficult to get somebody to be more determined, would it? Like you kind of have that. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I think it's something you can develop from experience. So whereas a difficulty or an obstacle might seem insurmountable, once you have tried to get over it, tried to pass it, tried to go underneath it, then actually, and then succeeded, you realise, actually, that, that wasn't really that difficult at all um mm. so the next time something comes up you, your determination is almost your uh based on your experience but there is definitely a kind of uh, an attitude that you know in the military that you've got to try it you've got to give it a go even if it seems really difficult even if it seems impossible you know give it a go because actually the if you translate that to a non-military setting um whatever job you have, whatever role you have in life, there's, there's things that are difficult. And if you just, if at the first hurdle, you just, oh, you know what? I don't really want to do this. It's, it's too much. You never get anywhere. No. You, you, you know, you, you, you no. just wouldn't do anything, especially as a, as a sports person, you know, first hamstring injury or first shoulder injury. And you go, oh, you know, this isn't for me. I've had enough. Well, <laughs> you're never cut out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're never you, you would out. almost self-select out of the system. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's probably no professional sports person around the world who's never had an injury. No. Um, 
but that experience enriches someone and it makes them a better person even in their chosen field of, of sport but also in their kind of in their in their life it makes you a better person because you, that experience will grow you yeah do you know david goggins uh, yeah i'm aware of some of this stuff yeah Okay. Yeah. He's somebody who I love. I was mentioned to you before how like I've kind of followed the army leadership a bit and him and Jocko Willing, but something just with determination that I kind of learned from him and have seen from a few different people, but he wanted to prove people wrong. So mm. he talks about some sergeant, I forget his name in his book. And he's like, this guy was out to get me. And I just, I wanted to take his soul and like you were talking about kind of difficulties and whatever. And this, the hell week that they go through, it just sounds like it's in like not humanly possible listening to what they have to do. It's just outrageous. But he used, he wanted to prove that guy wrong and he also wanted to prove himself wrong. And then another one, Michael Jordan in the last dance, you'll see he started creating these um, conflicts and wanting to prove people wrong. And it's like, you know, somewhat he's, some other guy he would make up said something and then it became personal and i wanted to beat that person so like i think determination helps if you have somebody or something you want to prove wrong yeah and i think there can be there can be some there can be positive drives and i think there can be negative drivers to this as well so you could have mm. a positive driver of, of, of attaining a goal and some might call it potentially a negative driver that you say you want to beat someone you want to there's a there's a conflict you want to have in order to become you know mm. to sort of win it or, or or succeed in it and and you you picked a couple of good examples there where i think that um the the motivation the motivation some would say the motivation is almost not important but that depends on the out on what outcome you're looking for and I'm always I always prefer kind of positive motivation um, because at the because that I feel that enriches someone more it develops them as a person more. What would be a positive motivation? So it would be um, something that would be climbing a mountain. So um, I can't remember the guy's name. He's he's ex-military. He's just done the Netflix program Fourteen Peaks. Oh yeah, I watched um, it. Uh, is it? Yeah, so you see, so he's ex-military, yeah. and he want he want his goal was to climb these number of peaks in in this amount of time. Um, you know, to me that would be very much positive motivation. It is a, it's yeah. it's a goal. It's a it's not against anyone in particular. It's against himself, and mm. ultimately, the greatest motivation is about yourself. Even in a, even in a team sport, so even in even in something like rugby, it's not necessarily about beating the other person. It's about being the best you can be mm. and the opposition in whatever form they take whatever sport you're playing the opposition allow you to develop as a person and allow you to be the best that you can be so you're always against yourself you might be playing against some opposition but actually they're the kind of you know the opposition are trying to do the same as well and by by being the best you can be, you develop not only as a person, you develop as a player and you, you improve your, the overall kind of team performance. So I would like to frame it in those, in that kind of window. Yeah. It's really interesting to say that I'm listening to Eddie Jones's book now, and he was saying that he was talking with Ajax and 20, 30 years ago, they used to tell young players, like you can come into 
Ajax and we're one of the powerhouses of Europe and you can be a part of one of the best teams in Europe. And that was motivation for people. They wanted to be part of that team, whereas Ajax aren't as good now. But what they say to young people today, people are more kind of focused on themselves and they say, we can make you the best, the best version of you and the best player that you can be. And people think about themselves more so. And I remember hearing Ronaldo a few years ago, Cristiano Ronaldo, and he said, like, he wants to break records. He wants to score the most, most goals. He wants to get the most assists, whatever. He wants to break all the records possible. And when I was growing up, I would have thought, oh, that's so self-centered. It's not team first. And he says, if I score all the goals, we're going to win. You know, so it's, yeah. it's a kind of, like you say, an individual motivation and driver within the team and of course there could sometimes come a conflict then if you're not passing a ball or whatever but and that's that's a really interesting point about team dynamics because you in any team whether you're whether you're just part of the team or whether you're leading or you're in charge of it that there will be people with different viewpoints different backgrounds different biases and and how that team is brought together and connected is the is the key to that performance. So there's there's kind of three areas that I generally generally look at in terms of building a culture and a performance. One is one is shared experience. The second is understanding. So that's understanding of each other and the team and the environment they're in. And then the third is empathy. And what shared experience does is it, it creates that connection. So it allows people to connect with each other on more than just a you know more than just a level that they turn up and they, they play a sport together. Um, and then what the uh, understanding does is that the understanding feeds from that shared experience so people can understand each other. They understand their teammates. They understand their own role in that environment. They understand the actual environment they're in. They understand the story and the, and the journey that that team is going on and where they fit within it. And that allows teams to have someone like Ronaldo to be the absolute superstar, but then to also have uh, your um, workers. Uh, yeah. And I was trying to think of an example then from sort of uh, uh, the, the Batman United used to be a good one. Park Ji Sung used to be a good one. He is just man-mark yeah. their best player. So if they played against Barca, he'd man-mark Messi. He'd man-mark. Yeah. yeah. So, but then, and then the empathy then comes in in that you get, so that especially from the leader to show empathy towards the, the, the team or the organization or whoever he's or she is, is with. Um, but then empathy amongst the individuals as well. So you can't really have understanding without empathy. Because if you understand someone, you then realize what makes them tick. You realize what gets them going or what calms them down. And, and sometimes there will be... Um, and the last dance is a really good example of a, of a, of a team. Well, I think it's a great example of a team that, that understood each other. Mm. Uh, and the individuals understood each other. They understood their role. They understood what they were doing. And then the, the management and the leadership also understood how to get the best out of those players. So how you would lead or manage, say, Dennis Rodman yeah. might be very different to how you might manage Scottie Pippen or, or, or Michael Jordan. But equally, you know, they all had to fit within that team environment. Yeah, that's so, such a good example. Yeah, like you say, and I think it's such an important part of leadership, understanding people. Once again, like when I was younger, you'd see someone do something that doesn't fit to the exact ideals that you think 
people should adhere to and then you you're pissed off and you tell you know you give out and whatever whatever but it's it's like you say that Dennis Rodman example and I heard a good analogy before it's like you want people walking along the line but for sure people are going to bounce off it from time to time and it's your job to as a leader to help them to understand them and help them come back you know so say the Dennis Rodman example could be he went could go on the beer for a couple of nights during the week and it's not to banish him out the out the off the team and give out and cause a hassle it's to understand him and then help him come back towards the team to come back towards the line yeah and the and that the road analogy is a great one so if you think you've got out here in canada eight lane highways going yeah. through going through toronto um four lanes on each side uh maybe more sometimes um if you're all on one of those four or five lanes you're all still going in the same direction yeah. But you might be in a different lane. One might be slightly ahead, one slightly back. So everyone's going in the same direction. And as long as you're as long as you're still on the same highway, you know, you'll eventually get there. Mm. And then empathy. Talk a little bit about that. So in my eyes, empathy is important because empathy generates, helps to generate trust. And trust doesn't matter what organization you're in, military, sport, you know, in charge of a team at a call center. It doesn't matter. Trust is the key thing that allows teams to work together. What empathy does, and that's empathy from from the top down and the bottom up, it allows people to talk. It allows people to understand each other. It allows people to develop that shared experience. So it's a real, it's an absolute bedrock, um, and it develops trust. So without trust, it without trust, you're not a team. You're just a group of individuals, and that's that's something that. Every time I've gone into a new team um, in the military, um, trust is something that I've tried to develop. And it was only probably later on I realized that actually me, me being me showing empathy and being empathetic to the people I was working with generated trust. And it was if I'd have known that earlier, it probably would have probably would have helped me certainly would have made things made things easier um but empathy is it can and the other thing is empathy can also be developed as well so if you so with a bit of self and critical analysis if someone thinks that they are not particularly empathetic it is something that can be developed and it is something that you can that you can develop as an individual um I'd, i'd probably say that in my early career there were times when maybe i wasn't so empathetic later on something i definitely tried to improve and develop uh and as such it made trust easier to generate something that just i'm thinking of like with showing empathy and being empathetic in a kind of sporting sense would be would it be like if someone say shows up late it's not cutting through them because we say no one shows up late it's being empathetic on trying to understand why they might show up late and then they say oh i've hassle at work or i'm stressed about this or my car broke down or whatever and then you build the trust through showing empathy that way absolutely and i think for for amateur coaches this is a really this is a really key point because everyone has a day job everyone has a life or a family or a partner or, or, or whatever and those things that get in the way of you turning up to training on a tuesday and thursday or whenever it is that's 
almost doesn't matter what the reason is. Everyone's might have a reason for not doing something or turning up late or as an absolute even the impression again, I'm not a great fan of calling people out on video analysis if they've done something wrong. Because no, nobody needs to know and be reminded they missed a tackle or they, they missed a missed a shot. Yeah. They know that. They, they don't need to want, they don't need to see that replayed. And I always think it's it's better to emphasize the positive. So as a coach, if you're trying to develop your players and as attributes or particular skills or or parts of the game you want to develop. If you if you see that, that's the kind of thing you want to emphasize. Rather than so-and-so missed a tackle, so-and-so dropped a ball. Actually, what you want to show is the good bits because it reinforces your message as a coach and it reinforces that positive culture within a team. Nobody needs to know they missed a tackle. I've been called out on video analysis for missing a tackle before. Yeah. And and I sat there just thinking, I didn't need to watch that. I didn't, yeah. I didn't need to be publicly shamed for missing a tackle. Um, I was 85 kilos. The guy was 110. I got yeah. steamrolled. <laughs> so yeah, I don't need to be called out on that. Um, and it certainly didn't make me any better as a player. Um, but I think that, that emphasising positive reinforcement is, is a really is a really good way of of showing empathy to someone and showing here's here's the highlight here's what this person did really well this is what we like and then as a wider team you know you're showing that actually the positive outcomes is what you're looking for not the not looking at the negative aspects yeah 100 percent. it's such a good point and yeah, I've been in those video reviews as well where it's Andy, you shouldn't have missed that tackle. Brian, you shouldn't have <laughs> knocked that ball on. It's like, yeah, I didn't yeah. want to knock the ball on. And it's crazy, but it's it's so easy as well to um to just find out what are the things you want your team to do, show examples of people doing those well. And then it works as well with the praise thing. So if it's like, wow, Andy, what a tackle that was, then everyone's looking around going, I want the coach to call me out next week for doing something good. So I'm going to go out and do whatever, tackle, catch, pass. Um, and yeah, no player, I think no player needs to be told in front of 20 other teammates that they did something badly and that that needs to be better. You know, it's just not, it's just not a way to go about it. And I think it, and that transcends every age group. So it doesn't matter what age the ch- what the person yeah. is. They might they might be an under six. They might be an under seven. They drop a ball. Doesn't matter. You they yeah. do not need to be reminded of that. Um, and I, I I've seen it. I've taken my kids to sports stuff, and there's occasionally been negative comments, and I just think, oh, that's oh yeah. It, you're not helping. You're not helping the person. You're not helping the game. You're not helping whatever sport it is that they're playing by calling that out. Um, so it, I think trust is something you can develop. Trust is definitely something you can develop and increase. It's also something you can lose really quickly. And, and I've seen it done really well and I've seen it done really badly. And I've seen people lose the trust of a team and an organization really quickly, mainly just through negative or, or, or inappropriate behavior. Um, and it's something to consider. Um, so your your behaviour as a leader will absolutely impact on the team. Sometimes in more ways than you you might realise. Mm. Um, 
but by emphasizing positive action, by emphasizing positive language, positive culture, and positive stories, your team culture will develop in a way that increases performance rather than decreases performance. Yeah, um, it's so true you say about your actions as a leader will influence the rest of the group. And I think a really common one is coaches and leaders in sports say, don't be given back chat to the ref, don't, don't be given out. And then on the sideline, they're jumping up and down screaming. <laughs> and I, I can think of one coach who I played under who used to say exactly that thing. And then he used to get asked to leave a touchline yeah. by the by the referee. And and you're on the pitch playing, just thinking, I'm embarrassed because my coach yeah. has been asked to leave. Yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And it's another one as a coach that you can um, help in that in that area with behaviors. Maybe more so in a kind of basketball setting where the coach is very close to the pitch, but mm. with a, with a calm demeanor. If you're like really calm and relaxed in those kind of final minutes of a game, and then they look, the players look across and they're like, "Oh, Andy's just chilling there. He he's not worried. Oh, I don't need to be worried." Whereas, you know, players like I've been there a hundred times where it's like three minutes to go and you're six points down and you start the heart rate goes up, you start to panic, and that doesn't do any benefit. It doesn't give you any benefit towards achieving your goal of scoring to try and win the game. And Fergie had a good one. It was, he used to just, tell, you know, Fergie time, like United always used to score late, but he used to just say to them, just keep doing what you're doing. Just, just don't, don't change anything. Just keep doing what you're doing and it'll come. Or, you know, sometimes it'll come. It's, yeah, it's a great point. And there was a clip a while ago on social media of the Wallabies. Can't remember what point it was in the game, but the team got around, they linked arms and they all did group breathing mm. just to, to reconnect themselves fo- and, and reconnect that focus and i thought and this is in the middle of the pitch so you had 60 odd thousand australians and in fact it might have been a blender's look up so you had 60 odd thousand mm. aussies and kiwis shouting from the stands and all that and, and this group of 15 blokes stood on the pitch linked arms and just did some deep breathing mm. during a gap in play and i thought that's a really a i thought it was really interesting and secondly i thought that's a really positive message to, to to show other players older players younger players whatever that actually you don't need to be screaming and frothing at the mouth in the last five minutes some deep breaths stay calm and was it the all black say um uh blue head red heart yeah. or something is it blue head uh, red body? blue uh, they say they say blue head red head so it's, it's, okay, it's yeah. either or yeah, yeah. so yeah. red is obviously you're losing your head like you're saying and the blue is the australian example just there yeah and I think it's it's a really interesting way of um it also it also adds to that that connection I was talking about in that um it's a very small shared experience. So it's, it's it's all like a micro experience on the pitch together. Mm. Mm. And if you if you add up all those micro ex- shared experiences, well then that create that helps to create your culture and that cr- helps to create your your trust and your performance. Yeah, it really I didn't see that that when you're on about with the Aussies, but it would really connect people, you know, like connect the team again, because yeah, once again, it's, it's heightened and it'd be very easy in those moments for somebody to try and do something like try and force something themselves and be, I don't not be a maverick, but, um, but just try and do it all themselves for the betterment of the team. But by yeah, coming together, breathing, connecting your, yeah, you're connecting again and, mm. 
getting ready. And I used to do it. I remember playing and I, I used to go walk about in the, I'd be stood there on the pitch and I, in my head, I'd start humming a tune and humming a song. And then I'd find myself doing it and realise I am not in this game. <laughs> not in this game mm-hmm. at all. And I did a little bit of research on it and realised that actually you know, breathing and just deep breaths helps to focus you and bring you in. And it would literally be whatever song was on the radio if I was getting out of the car <laughs> before I went in the changing rooms. And, and I used to do it quite regularly. And I'd have to you know, bring myself back to the present. And yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting skill. And there's probably other people that do it as well, but I never did it as a team. Uh, but that, that really resonated with me, what the Wallabies were doing there. Yeah, I've started doing a team playing this fall recently, and we did it after we scored a try to, you know, back in the halfway to kind of reset and get ready for the restart, because that's often a time where people fuck up for want of a better word you know they just score a try and then they're still they're still in that time of scoring the try and like oh we just scored we just scored and you're not focused on the next job at hand and then you drop a ball they have a scrum 15 out and whatever yep. and another another time it's really good is when you've just conceded so the last thing um the last thing i think most people want to hear is oh andy come on we can't miss that tackle you know yeah you know, yep. just not have a rule where you're not allowed to talk until everyone has performed three or four breaths together. Yeah, great idea. And I think that that would that would alleviate a lot of a lot of the just uh, throwaway chat. Oh, yeah. Inevitably, in any in any team sport, whenever there's a good or a bad thing, it would it would get rid of that chat that is almost just people saying it for the sake of it. Yeah. rather than a real meaningful purpose behind it um and really the the, the actual the, the chat and the discussion should come earlier in the week when you're doing your when you're doing your connections when you've got your kind of shared experience um period during training um that's when all of that comes out but on the pitch yeah absolutely very much as a team together but stop stopping all the and the classic is someone just shouting come on yeah come on or, or lads work, or, come on or work harder yeah I mean, you hear it from the t- you hear it from the touchline um and you know i've played in teams where there's been old guys wearing blazers on the touchline um shouting what they think is encouragement yeah. it's just it's what it's white noise at the end of the day oh 100 andy thanks Mel, for your time uh tell me and let people know where they can find you on social media and sure. different platforms so if anyone wants to connect about uh leadership culture and team development um you can follow um gray wolf consulting group and that is at gray wolf teams and that's on twitter and instagram um and my email is in the bio for all of those social media so if anybody wants to get hold of me my email is there and i'm open to discussions or if people want to get hold of me and discuss things or you know feel free to get in touch brilliant cheers andy thanks a lot mate got something from that chat if you did would you please take a second and share it on social media now on twitter instagram or linkedin you can take a screen grab and post it to whichever channel and tag me at off field rugby help spread the word so that others can learn too would really appreciate it i really enjoyed the chat as i talked about the start of the pod i've been interested in how the army do things for quite a while probably i don't know six seven eight years So I really enjoyed delving into those different areas and learning. 
One thing I would just like to quickly chat about and kind of emphasize the importance of is how coaches give players feedback. And this extends to leaders and captains also. So maybe how players give other players feedback. So we talked about the video analysis and I just want to focus on this because I think that this is a huge area of untapped potential for most coaches and teams. Most teams nowadays at most levels will be doing some sort of video analysis and this is brilliant. It's a great way to learn and it's also a great way to build confidence in your players, develop leadership and improve cohesion in your team and improve the collective understanding that the team has of the game plan and what you want them to do in certain situations. But when done wrong, video analysis can actually have a hugely detrimental effect on your players and the team as a whole, like we chatted about in the pod a little bit. A badly run video analysis session can shatter players' confidence and leave people, the team as a whole, confused as to what the coach wants them to do or is actually expecting them to do in certain situations. It can create a kind of disparity about what you have in your head about what they should be doing in certain parts of the field or certain times of the match and what they think they should be doing. So firstly, use video analysis as an opportunity to build up your players' confidence. Find something that they have done well and give them praise. This is simple but so powerful. A trick here also is to give the superstars in your team or the the kind of better players praise in private, so one-on-one, and then give the, we'll say, regular players praise in public in front of the team. Because everyone knows who the best players are and as coaches we kind of unconsciously give them more praise. And also they'll be getting plenty of praise from others outside of the team environment too. So if you want to praise them, a good way to go about it is through sending them a clip of a great play they made direct to them on WhatsApp. And maybe you praise and single out some of the great plays from the regular players or the kind of vast majority of the players in your team in the team WhatsApp group or when you meet as a team to do video analysis. We chatted about it in the pod, but literally every single player who makes a mistake is fully aware that they've made a mistake and their teammates are also aware. Don't bring it up again. I promise you that showing a clip of me missing a tackle and saying, okay, Brian, we need you to make that tackle in front of the team will not improve my tackling. Or if you say to me one-on-one, it's like, I get it. I missed the tackle. It'll have a negative effect on my confidence and self-esteem and or else I'll just won't listen to you and if you want me as a player to be missing less tackles and for me to improve my tackling technique think about what you can do as a coach during training to help me be a better player a better tackler if your players aren't playing as well as you would like them to or the team as a whole isn't playing as well Think about what you need to do differently as a coach. It's on you, not them. Next, when showing team attack, team defense, set piece, whatever, show the best examples and best execution and praise it. 
People can then see clearly and understand what it is you're looking for and then they'll try and replicate this. Showing a bad play and saying something ambiguous like, lads, that needs to be better, won't give any clear direction. Now, there are times, and I believe there is space for giving work-ons and feedback that could be quote-unquote negative, for sure. Say you want your line-out lifts to get better, and you can't find a great example of it in your games. Your players just aren't doing it yet. That's cool. Find a clip of a pro team doing it brilliantly, as you would like your team to be doing it, and show your team that, and say, this is what we're after. You could also maybe find the best example from your team and say, this is a pretty good one and most teams at our level will be delighted with that, but I know you've got more in you. In my opinion, that will get the response you're looking for. You can also improve leadership in your team during video analysis by delegating sections of the review to players to present. This will help them with their public speaking and give them more confidence in speaking in front of their teammates and the group. You don't need to be doing it all and you shouldn't be doing it all as a coach. Lastly, Eddie Jones' new book talks about how young people today have shorter attention spans than young people did in the past. And it's definitely a fact, I can attest to it myself. Eddie says that now all of the meetings in England camp are 20 minutes max, video analysis included, because after that, people's focus starts waning big time. I would certainly agree with this. People start switching off, they start getting bored, distracted. I know it myself as a player, I start getting bored and distracted, and I've seen it when I'm presenting as a coach. I'm like, oh, I'm going too long here, they're bored. So, as a coach or leader, what you need to focus on is becoming a better communicator and getting your message across in less time, more succinctly. And less is more. One great clip is perfect. You don't need to show five clips of the same thing done well. People get it. They're not idiots. You show one, they'll see exactly what you're after. You don't need to go, here's number two, here's number five, here's an, another example, another example. People just get bored. Any questions on this, uh, you can send me a DM on Instagram, at Rugby. I just really, really think, like I said, that video analysis is a huge, huge area of untapped potential. I think it can be such a powerful tool in building your players up, developing that leadership that you need from your players because you're not going to be on the field with them. And also in getting your players all aligned and fully understanding what the objective is, what the goal is, how we want to attack, how we want to defend, whatever it is. If you're an ambitious player and are serious about improving and getting to your next level, I have a Patreon where I'll help you reach your goals and become the player that you know you can be. You'll get extra podcasts which will help you become far more confident, have more self-belief in yourself and your abilities, and I chat about and help you with all things leadership, mental skills, and how to bounce back from tough situations and adversity, because they're going to come. The link to the Patreon is here in the show notes, and also in my Twitter and Instagram bios, which are at Rugby.
please give me a follow there too. I share content based around the things I mentioned. If you enjoy the podcast but don't want any extra content, extra podcasts, like I just chatted about, but would like to show your support, there is a supporters tier on Patreon that you can join through the same links. A lot of podcasts you listen to now are run by big companies with teams behind them to do the scheduling, the research, the editing, and all the extra work that goes into making a podcast, like outside of just having a chat, all that extra work. But I'm just me, a guy with a laptop, a microphone, and a Zoom account trying to chat with interesting people to help you learn new things, help you become better versions of yourself, and maybe bring a smile to your face throughout your day. So I would really, really greatly appreciate any support. And the supporters tier is very, very cheap. You can click into the link and see it. If you've been listening to the pod, you'll know that literally all top players have a mental skills coach or a sports psychology coach, whatever name you put on it. In the Patreon, there's a mentorship tier, which is for people who want to work one-on-one with me to achieve their goals and get them where they want to go. Lastly, if you're a coach and you would like to help your players become more confident, have more self-belief, work on the culture within the team or develop the leadership, please send me a DM on Instagram or my email, which is in the show notes. And the younger, the better when it comes to this. It's so powerful to help young players with the mental side of the game. You ask any player and they will all say, I wish I knew this when I was younger. I wish I knew this when I was younger. So yeah, if you're a coach, send me a DM. would love to chat. Any feedback, thoughts, questions, you can send me a DM on Instagram at Rugby. My Twitter and TikTok is the same handle and my LinkedIn is my name, Brian Moylet. Lastly, if you want to be an absolute legend, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, letting me know what you liked about the episode. I can see them coming in. Thank you very, very much to those people who do. And if you want, you can also take a screen grab of your phone, of the episode, and share it on your Instagram story or on Twitter. Thanks, Emil, for clicking in today. Greatly appreciate it. Have a good one. Cheers.